Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are going to start Article 7 from the epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the status of the controversy, that is, what is the issue that needs clear confession with regard to the teaching on the Holy Supper of Christ. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. My companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is the pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thank you, Pastor Smith. Great to be with you. All right. So let's go ahead and jump right into this. This is a very, very important article of our Christian confession. Uh, not the chief doctrine, of course, that uh, remains the doctrine of justification. But as we see, everything tends to relate back to that as obviously everything is tied and united in Christ himself. Um, and, and this is, uh, as we just celebrated, Holy Week, um, had Monday, Thursday, Christ gives us this precious gift of his own body and blood for the comfort of, uh, uh, for, for the forgiveness of sins, which brings us great comfort. And, uh, and of course, uh, the confirmed by the miracle of the resurrection, which we celebrated, uh, just on Sunday. So, uh, a very important thing for us in our Christian life, uh, our confession on the Holy Supper of Christ, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, and, uh, and so we certainly want to jump into what's going on here. I'm going to go ahead and read just the first paragraph. Again, we read from the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is, once again, epitome of the formula of Concord, Article 7, the Holy Supper of Christ, Paragraph 1. The Zwinglian teachers are not to be counted among the theologians who receive acknowledge and profess the Augsburg Confession. They separated from our theologians at the very time when this confession was presented. Yet they are advancing themselves and are attempting under the name of this Christian confession to spread their error. Therefore, we also intend to make a necessary statement about this controversy in which we have judged that the Church of Christ should be instructed. All right, so Pastor Bessel, go ahead, uh, lay out for us here. Uh, first, who are we talking about when we're talking about the Zwinglian teachers? Like what groups would that even still include today? But also historically, of course, we want to lay that out. And then why, why would they not be counted among those of the Augsburg Confession, i.e. the Lutherans? Sure. So the Zwinglian teachers, it's an interesting first phrase because because. Uh, uh, today, we probably don't know. I think the, the, the typical Christian probably doesn't know the name Zwingli. 
as much as uh, they would know the name Calvin, for example. Uh, and yet, really, this does start all the way back in the 1520s uh, with a man named Ulrich Zwingli, uh, uh, who uh, was prominent at the same time as Luther. Uh, you have, uh, back in the late 1520s, you have the Marburg Colloquy, in which uh, Luther and Zwingli sat down, and, and Zwingli's counterparts were two guys named Luther and Ecolampadius. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Luther had Melanchthon at his side uh, and, and other theologians at, at his side. Uh, and, and they basically sat down to say, can we agree on points of Christian doctrine? And he rightly said at the outset that the, that the fundamental point, if you will, the foundational point of Christian doctrine is justification. Uh, and yet you might say the, the point at which all of this either visibly comes together or visibly falls apart uh, really is uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, and, uh, and, and this showcased itself in the Marburg co- uh, Colloquy when Luther and Zwingli basically agreed on the first 13 or 14 points of doctrine, or at least thought they did. Then they got to the issue of the Lord's Supper, uh, and, in, and in describing and discussing the issue of the Lord's Supper, not only do they see that they disagree there on the Lord's Supper, but that also sort of snowballs back into all the other points they thought they had agreed upon. So in the first generation, you've got sort of Luther versus Zwingli, if you will, uh, and, and then also the counterparts of Zwingli. Uh, uh, and, and Luther's got some great writings for people who love to read Luther's works, uh, some great writings uh, in, in his uh, own personal writings against Zwingli, uh, writings like um, that the words of this is my body still stand firm against the fanatics, things like that. Uh, it, then there's sort of a second generation, if you will, and that's where Calvin comes to prominence. Uh, Calvin is really more prominent. He's sort of coming on the scene as Luther uh, dies, uh, and, and he's sort of second generation. Um, Philip Melanchthon's um, uh, sort of uh, what's referred to as his variata, the, the, the second time that he sort of edits his uh, Augsburg Confession, if you will, thinking that it's his, his own right to edit it, uh, gives Calvin some wiggle room in there for his view of the supper, and we can get to those views in a, in a second here. And then there's sort of a third generation. So you got Zwingli in the first generation, Calvin in the second generation, and then the third generation are those who are sort of followers of Calvin after Calvin dies. Uh, I can't remember the year exactly. I want to say maybe he dies at 1555 or something like that. Uh, and, and after Calvin dies, a third generation come into play. And this is the generation that had sort of uh, become um, uh, so prominent even in Lutheran circles uh, that they had almost convinced uh, the Lutheran electors to throw out all of the genuine Lutheran preachers who were preaching uh, the bodily presence of Christ in the sacrament, to almost throw them out of the pulpits and basically put in Calvinist preachers, those who did not believe in the bodily presence of Christ in the sacrament. So you really got those three generations that build up to this issue. Now, to your second question, uh, why are they not to be counted among those who agree with the Augsburg Confession's uh, teaching regarding the Supper? It really comes down to the question of, is the body, uh, are the body and blood uh, of Christ in the, you know, in with and under the bread and the wine? Uh, uh, when, we, when we receive the bread and the wine, are we also receiving uh, the body and blood of Christ? Uh, uh, Lutherans, of course, would say, yes, by all means, we are receiving the body and blood of Christ. Um, whereas the Protestants would say, well, no, uh, or, well, maybe in a way, but they definitely would not say 
uh, yes, in the in the bodily manner in which Lutherans believe that when you uh, uh, place the bread on the tongue, there also is the body of Christ, and when you uh, drink the wine, there also is the blood of Christ. Uh, uh, Protestants would not uh, agree with those statements, and they would have their own uh, variations, if you will, on trying to explain it in a more rational way. And that's what this article, uh, in a sense, denounces is that rationalism. But that's that's where this article sets apart the Lutheran teaching of the Augsburg Confession as opposed to these Wingleian teachers. So, so it says there, and, and you were hitting this, that uh, they're advancing themselves and are attempting under the name of this Christian confession to spread their error. And you, and you covered really well how they were advancing and, and, and even getting pretty forceful with this. Um, it, there's a term that often gets brought up in connection with this article that I wonder if you could identify for us uh, as, as it'll be helpful for us in understanding here called crypto-Calvinism. How does that tie in here? Sure. Crypto sort of the idea of, of hidden hiding. Uh, uh, when you get into the third generation, the 1560s and 1570s, uh, under the name of Lutheran, uh, these men who were in the pulpits uh, were um, taking the name Lutheran. And, and even earlier, you know, uh, uh, at, at one point, of course, the original uh, with the original Reformation, you've got uh, You've got Rome versus Lutherans, and I think a lot of folks who were um, not necessarily theologically um, equal uh, to the Lutheran view still found safe haven and still found safety and freedom in the Lutheran confession, freedom from from Rome. Uh, And as they do, then as the generations go on, even though they do not hold to the Lutheran view, uh, they will uh, nevertheless take the Lutheran name because it means safety. So you get to the third generation here, and, and you've now got um, uh, a more um, uh, widespread non-Lutheran view of the sacrament among preachers and teachers of the gospel uh, who are saying, you know, uh, we now have a chance actually to overtake, for example, um, uh, Saxony, uh, to overtake sort of the, uh, the heartland of the Lutheran Reformation by our very subtle views and under-the-surface views. And I, I don't have all my resource materials with me. This whole shelter in place has been sort of odd, so I don't have them all. And I didn't get a chance to look up the exact story uh, and history behind how this was found out. But basically, if I remember correctly, uh, uh, a letter fell into a, a letter between um, it might have even been Melanchthon's own son-in-law, who was one of the core preachers or something like that, if I remember the story correctly, uh, a letter that was sent back and forth between these subtle crypto-Calvinists as they were trying to place into the hands of the elector of Saxony and trying to get him to understand, hey, uh, uh, you know, follow us, follow our teaching. Uh, that letter fell into the quote-unquote wrong hands. It fell into the hands of a genuine Lutheran preacher who then showed it to the prince or the elector and showed that they were very intentionally uh, uh, trying to get the uh, uh, the the leadership of these uh, sac- or of these um, uh, electoral colonies, uh, trying to get them to believe that the Calvinist view was actually the Lutheran view, trying to get them to. Uh, take into their own hands the Calvinist uh, catechisms, things like that, uh, uh, and therefore this name crypto-Calvinist comes into play. That that though they readily denied the Lutheran confession, they were willing historically to take the name Lutheran 
with the hopes of driving out the actual Lutheran confession from the preaching and teaching of the land. Yeah, so that's really helpful. I mean, at stake here is what is the theology at work? What is the teaching that is coming uh, for the comfort of consciences and receiving the forgiveness of sins? Um, of course, in, in CFW Walther, first president of Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, he spends uh, a couple of his theses kind of returning to this idea and talking about, you know, even even improper teaching that's going on by the crypto-Calvinists and so forth. Is, is really what's at stake is a matter of proper distinction of law and gospel. And, uh, and so certainly uh, the, the proper and clear confession of this is at stake. And you also brought up here how, you know, at, at the time of the Augsburg Confession, it was kind of Rome versus uh, the Lutherans uh, and, and Luther himself at the center of that, of course, although it's, it's the theology that he professed. Um, but back in Article 10 uh, of the Augsburg Confession, where they deal with um, that, uh, you know, that, that confession of what the Lutheran theologians are, are teaching and so forth. Um, it, as a, as the Augsburg confession is against Rome, it's probably the shortest, I think it is the shortest article in the whole Augsburg confession. I mean, it's just a couple of lines. Mm -hmm. And, and so it seems like, and, and we're going to get into as, as we continue to go over the next couple of weeks, uh, through this article, how clearly we still want to distinguish ourselves um, from the transubstantiation and view of the Roman Catholic Church. But is it fair to say then at the real heart of this article, as we get to it in the formula of Concord is, is we're focusing in on basically all the other reformed and, and, and how we are not in alignment with them. Uh, and, and we, we have a greater disparity, perhaps I might be going too far here. I don't know what your thoughts are, uh, but probably a greater disparity in terms of our teaching and confession of what's going on in the sacrament than we see even present in the Augsburg Confession when it comes to against Rome. What are your What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. In the Augsburg Confession, I think part of the reason that it's so short, and you're right, it's it's three or four lines in the Augsburg Confession, Article 10. The reason it's so short is because the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics agree that the body and blood of Christ are truly present. In fact, uh, uh, just looking it up here real quickly, the, the, the phrase is, uh, our churches teach that the body and blood of Christ are truly present and distributed to those who eat the Lord's Supper. That's it. That's it. And, and both Rome and the Lutherans would agree on that. Now, there's some disagreement in the idea of transubstantiation, but that disparity, like you rightly say, is is much smaller. And, and Luther even at, at times says, you know, if, if they don't want to believe that the bread and the wine are still present, that's not as big of an issue as uh, the problems that the Roman Catholics have with their understanding of the, the use and the benefit of the supper. But in terms of what's actually present, there's a huge disparity between uh, the, the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans uh, versus the Protestants. And so here in the Formula Concord, which is really the document, you know, if, you, if, if somebody's just getting started on the Book of Concord, one of the things I try to point out to them is, is that some of the earlier documents are sort of, quote-unquote, against Rome. And the Formula Concord is sort of, quote-unquote, against the Protestants. Now, that's a gross generalization, but that, that's maybe a helpful way of understanding that here the focus of the discussion on the Lord's Supper is uh, how do we show or how do we confess that we are not the same as the Calvinists, that we are not the same as the Reformed, that there, that there is a, a difference between these supposed two sides, one side being Reformed, the other side being um, uh, uh, Roman Catholic? 
so that the Roman Catholics often accused the Lutherans of having sort of a reformed view of the supper, and the Reformed accused the uh, uh, Lutherans of having sort of a, a quasi transubstantiation view of the supper. They refer to it as consubstantiation. That's not true either. Uh, and, and the Lutherans are sort of, in a sense, stuck in the middle of saying, no, we've got the scriptural view, and 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 the disparity between these other points uh, needs to be needs to be upheld, if you will. Uh, in both ways. So the Augsburg Confession against Rome, but this great disparity on saying yeah, the, the Reformed don't even believe that Christ is bodily present in the sacrament. At least we can rejoice in that with, with Rome uh, and, and with the Eastern Orthodox, uh, but with the, with the Protestants, we can't, can't rejoice in that together. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I often recommend, uh, you know, a great place to start reading for kind of those who are interested in what, uh, Lutheranism is about is actually the epitome of the formula of Concord. Um, just just yeah. because, you know, the Augsburg Confession, very, very clear document, very good document. Uh, I, I think you should read the entire book of Concord, honestly. Uh, and, and, and the two churches I serve here in Southern Illinois have the unaltered Augsburg Confession as a part of their official name even. So I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, dismissing those out of hand at, at, at any cost. And certainly the small called articles from Luther's own hand, very, very helpful, clear confession of what we Lutherans believe, teach, and confess. But I think sometimes the, the, the epitome of the formula of Concord is just this uh, beautiful document that just sets forth, um, you know, this, this is what we believe, teach, and confess as Lutheran Christians. And I am with you that it, it really distinguishes us more from you know, uh, the, the reformed, the other reformed groups than it does from Rome. Uh, and, and I think that can be really helpful in our day and age because, uh, there's this idea that persists in the Lutheran church and so forth too, where, uh, we always want to be careful in terms of our practices. And this will certainly come up in later articles, uh, in terms of our practices, because the people will always say, Oh, that's too Roman Catholic. And we don't do that. And things like that. Um, but uh, even CFW Walther, first president of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, says, uh, you know, no, as a matter of fact, when we recover things that are truly Lutheran, that accusation will come just simply because those were the good things that we wanted to keep from Roman Catholicism, and we never had any problem with those. Um, uh, yeah. and, and perhaps what we should be more worried about, especially in our American context, I think, is it's just so dominant in what I call American evangelicalism is how reform mm -hmm. teaching is among us. And so I, I, I wonder if you could just spend a few moments here too, is, is this crypto Calvinism still an issue for us that we face? Let's just limit it to, and, and I'm not looking for specifics here, you know, uh, or anything of that mm -hmm. nature. Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, not specifics, like don't call out any churches or anything like that. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, you know, that's <laughs> better left to our theologians and our ecclesiastical heads to kind of have right. those sorts of things, but but what are ways that uh, per, perhaps crypto Calvinism is still among us in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod today, or or still a threat to us? I might say. Sure, uh, part of this gets into what you were just talking about in terms of uh, uh, you know is the danger nowadays for us in our land to quote unquote look and sound more like Rome, or quote unquote look and sound more like the American evangelical. Uh, I suppose you'll get into that quite a bit when you get into the you know, discussion on customs and practices in Article 10. Uh, but uh, even here in, in the Holy Supper, um, that distinction uh, shows up in, in, in various ways. Uh, you'll probably get into this in the affirmative and negative statements. But 
What about issues like um, uh, open communion versus closed communion? You know, who, who receives the benefits of the sacrament? That issue of open communion versus closed communion is an issue of do you, do you hold the Protestant or the Reformed view uh, uh, that says, well, there's nothing here that can harm me anyway? Uh, or do you hold a Lutheran view? One that I think is is uh, very um, uh, circumstantial here, and in, in, in our unique circumstance, one that people ought to think about quite a bit. And you'll have uh, you know a great opportunity to discuss this in future weeks. Is think of how the sacramental churches, uh, Rome and the Lutheran churches, uh, have a much more difficult time with the shelter in place than than the Reformed do. Uh, that the reform practice says, well, uh, uh, our worship is basically spiritual, and therefore, if that means we can't be together for it, we can still think about it together in sort of the spiritual form of worship. Whereas the the Lutheran churches and the, and the Roman Catholic churches rightly say, well, how do we how do we benefit from the body and blood of Christ uh, if we can't be at the altar of God to receive the sacrament? Uh, and so the sacramental churches. I think have a much harder time uh, with this uh, shelter in place than do the churches that don't necessarily uh, uh, think that the sacraments uh, play as big a role in terms of the worship and, and spiritual life of the church. I think that's really uh, dead on target, especially what we're going to get into as we start to get the theology of uh, that's at stake here when we get into uh, the, the next paragraphs under the status of the controversy of, you know, for for reformed. And, and, and I think I, I'm so with you on this, that, um, you know, when, when it's just a spiritual gathering, um, you know, that that is in view of what it is that we even do. And there's there's other things that come in, as, as you say, in terms of the practices, but but even the view of what it is that we're doing, you know, are we just giving praise to God or are we actually receiving God in the very midst of us uh, that distinguishes us from American evangelicalism? But just this uh, view that it's a it's only a spiritual thing that we're we're gathering for. Well, yeah, then you can just kind of do that at home, you know, and, and through the means of media and, uh, and things of that nature just as easily. Um, but uh, for, for us in our Lutheran position, that, that when we talk about the body of Christ, that that in, contains our gathering together, but also our gathering, but and chiefly our gathering together to receive the body of Christ in, with, and under the bread and wine, which is truly present there, well, yeah, that's that's a lot more difficult for us to do uh, uh, in, in these sorts of means and, and a lot more to uncover there. Certainly, I am in agreement with you. I'll have to kind of throw this, uh, uh, you know, teaser out there that uh, when we get to the negative statements, certainly we'll want to come back to a lot of those sorts of uh, contemporary applications that we see uh, some of that theology at work. But uh, I, I think that's enough set up for right now. We're going to go ahead and take a break. But please join us right after this as we continue to talk about the status of the controversy.
In this season of life, when everything seems to be constantly changing, one thing remains the same, the promises of God given to us in the Word of Christ. I'm Sarah Golseth, a digital media specialist for KFUO Radio, here at home in my spare room, to remind you all the ways you can hear the Word of Christ on KFUO Radio from wherever you call home. Our daily broadcast at KFUO.org includes talk programs, sacred music, daily chapel services, weekend worship services, and Bible studies. Our on-demand library includes many of our broadcast programs, in addition to podcasts from LCMS Partners. You and your family can stream KFUO Radio at KFUO.org or on the TuneIn app. You can even ask your smart speaker to play KFUO Radio. You can also pull up your favorite podcast app and search for KFUO Radio to find all of our available podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest updates, as well as daily Bible verses and hymns. We are KFUO Radio, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere, at KFUO.org. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue to talk with Pastor Mark Bestel, uh, as he is in Elgin, Texas, I should have, I maybe probably overemphasized that now, but I uh, uh, just want to make sure I pronounce the name of the place that uh, our wonderful pastors that uh, contribute here uh, serve. So we are continuing to discuss Article 7 of the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, the Holy Supper of Christ, and um, realized uh, that uh, as we went into break there, uh, I, I had asked... Um, uh, Pastor Bestel about, uh, and he gave us great history. I really liked it, broke it down as we're kind of looking at the third generation of these Wingleyan teachers and so forth here. Um, but just before we move into these next paragraphs where we start to get the theology that's at work and where we distinguish there and so forth, um, I, I need to get from you. Uh, give us an idea of what are some of the church bodies, at least that we would see today, uh, that have kind of come about out of these Wingleyan teachers. And and I'm just going to go ahead and throw out there that I see it as kind of a spectrum of churches and kind of give us an idea of maybe where they fall along uh, in terms of the spectrum there. Yeah, you're right. And and when we when we mentioned in the last segment that uh, we, we know so well the name Calvin as opposed to the name Zwingli, uh, and perhaps the, the uh, differences in their views uh, are differences that are also seen among the spectrum of churches where you can't always pinpoint where along the spectrum, even between Zwingli and Calvin, uh, are some of these churches. So, you know, churches that are strict, quote-unquote, Calvinist, the, the uh, Orthodox uh, uh, Reform, the, the Presbyterians, uh, those would certainly hold to more of an understanding of the idea that this is, that there is something spiritually happening it's simply not the body and blood of Christ there present in the sacrament as much as eating. And as you're eating, there's a spiritual eating of, of Christ in heaven, and you'll get to those things as we go along here. Uh, whereas those church bodies um, that would uh, be more of the, you know, uh, the other side of that spectrum of, well, no, there's nothing here. It's just a memorial meal. Uh, you know, you, you might have churches in that, like the Baptist churches, although some of the Baptist churches, even up, uh, you know, up here in northern Illinois, the, some of the Baptist churches hold uh, sort of something in between Zwingli and Calvin. And, and you almost just have to go to each of these uh, churches and, and, and say, well, you know, what, what's your actual view on this? Uh, the, the community churches. Uh, or another another one, the, the sort of the big box mega churches. You'll get everything from this is a memorial meal to uh, uh, this is a spiritual eating, uh, and so you can have that. You know, one community church will say this, 
and and because they're not really part of a church body, uh, the other community church down the street will say that. Uh, so it's really difficult to to pinpoint everything. But I think generally what you can sort of say is, if they tend toward the Baptist side, you will see a lot of uh, strict memorial meal ordinance type of a thing. Uh, uh, and and if you go more toward the Presbyterian Reform side, you'll see more of the uh, spiritual eating. Either way, you know, I always find it interesting that uh, uh, you can sort of tell when you look at the different church catalogs or the bulletins or whatever, one of the one of the big lines is do this in remembrance of me, right? I mean, that, that's on all the bulletin covers. It's in it's on all of the you know in, engraved in the front of altars. Sometimes not because it's wrong. Those are the words of Christ too, but because it emphasizes sort of the memorial meal aspect of this, as opposed to this is my body, this is my blood. So it, it's really difficult to necessarily pinpoint just by a particular name. But as you start to see some of their conduct, some of their, you know, what what uh, phraseology they might focus on in the words of institution, that sort of gives you a clue. Is this memorial meal? Is this spiritual eating? Sadly, neither of them are the body and blood of Christ. I think one of the other things that I'll tag in there as one of the clues of kind of where they fall in that spectrum uh, is, is how often do they do it? Right. So right. Good uh, point. Yes. if they only do it, you know, a few times a year or things like that, uh, uh, then they probably fall on that memorial meal. You know, we, we just do this simply because Christ said to do it and to remember him when we did it, uh, mm-hmm. when we do it rather. Um, but uh, uh, those who who kind of give, you know, there's there's it, it's a spiritual presence, you know, kind of more um, in lines with Calvin there and so forth uh, in that Presbyterian view. Uh, they'll be a little closer to us in terms of frequency, uh, certainly because mm-hmm. they, they think that there is something going on there, but it's only in its spiritual sense, right? Uh, and so we'll continue yeah. to lay out the theology, but go ahead with that, yeah. Yeah, especially uh, here we just finished Holy Week, and like you say, you know, those who only do it every so often, Monday, Thursday, right? There's your one time a year, perhaps, where you do this in remembrance of me. Uh, there are some churches up here, in fact, that... Uh, uh, that will that will uh, make sure that they celebrate Monday Thursday just for that for that reason uh, and and uh, and so they definitely highlight that one time a year eating and that sort of tells you yeah their view of it is a memorial meal uh, I sometimes I even wonder where does the phrase the Last Supper come from does it does it actually come from the text of the scriptures or is it or is it more this idea of do this in remembrance of me because it was the last time that Jesus ate with his disciples, as opposed to the institution of a new thing rather than the last opportunity of sort of an old thing. Here, here's, here's the institution of the new covenant. Uh, this is my body, this is my blood. And yet for many people, it's almost a, a sorrowful time of a last supper uh, because this is the last time he does this, and therefore we're going to remember that, and, and therefore once a year or maybe a couple times a year, the memorial meal uh, 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 theology will will uh, have the supper uh, as a way of remembering that. So you're you're absolutely right. The, the frequency is another another giveaway. 
Yeah, there's probably a great PhD project in there somewhere too. Yeah. If someone's looking for an idea, I mean, cause, cause you could also view it in this way too, right? You know, that it's the last of the Passover meals because Jesus right. institutes the new. And so it's not something we wouldn't necessarily entirely be opposed to, but uh, uh, maybe a little deeper right. than, uh, than we need to on this show, especially for the, the current controversy that uh, we need clear confession on. So let's go ahead and uh, right. jump forward into these paragraphs then and start to begin to uh, unfold. What is the theology? at work here that differentiates us. So again, we're reading from the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord from CPH. This is Epitome of the Formula of Concord, Article 7, uh, picking up with Paragraph 2, Status of the Controversy, the chief controversy between our teaching and that of the sacramentarians regarding this article. You know what? I'm not even going to read it because now we have a new term introduced to us. Uh, and it's going to come up several times here in this paragraph. So before I read it, uh, now they've thrown sacramentarians at us. Go ahead and identify what are we talking about with there? Uh, the, the sacramentarian, I, if I remember my history correctly on this, and again, here's the deficiency of our shelter in place. But if I remember uh, correctly, it's, uh, they, were, they were labeled as sacramentarians uh, uh, because they uh, used the term sacramental to mean less than the body and blood of Christ actually being present. Uh, that yes, he was he was present in a sacramental way, and that for them meant a spiritual way that he's not you know actually there with his body and blood, but that we in our worshipful uh, uh, nature uh, uh, spiritually feast on him. Uh, the um, as opposed to the true presence, right? We got that in the Augsburg Confession that the uh, that Rome and the Lutherans agree that he is truly present. And they say, well, he's sacramentally present. And, and out of that, I believe, comes the term sacramentarian. Of course, as the terminology changes over time, I think nowadays uh, we Lutherans would probably be very comfortable saying, well, we refer to the, uh, to the sacramental presence of Christ. And we know by that we mean uh, that he is there not um, locally or physiologically where you're going to put uh, the the host underneath a microscope and find the DNA of Jesus, and yet he is there simply because he says, this is my body, and the Word makes it so, and therefore we say, yes, he is sacramentally there in his very body and blood. When they originally used that term, they meant it to be less than the true presence. And so nowadays it might even be something where Lutherans get used to the phrase bodily presence uh, as opposed to um, you know, uh, true presence. Because what does the word true mean? Some people can mean spiritual. Other mean other people can mean sacramental. Other people can mean uh, physiologically or, or locally present. Uh, and and those are all terms you'll get into, I suppose, as you get into the uh, affirmative statements. Yeah, I think real briefly we can hit here. Uh, one of the helpful things about the reader's edition of the Book of Concord is it has a glossary in the back. And while they don't have sacramentarian in the glossary back there, they do have sacrament. And so I do want to just briefly read the first part of this. It says, a sacrament is a sacred act inst instituted by God in which God himself has joined his word of promise to a visible element and by which he offers, gives, and seals the forgiveness of sins earned by Christ. Uh, and, and then it goes on to say, by this definition, there are two sacraments, holy baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, and then sometimes holy absolution gets thrown in there. Uh, and we've talked about all that on this show before, too, as well. And so what you know, and, and I brought this up to you before we started recording and so forth off the air. I, I think it's interesting that uh, today we would be more uh, prone as Lutheran Christians to, to hold on to that term sacrament, right, and, and want it connected with us. 
because again, I think American evangelicalism is so influential in our land um, that, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of that broad term uh, that uh, now there's this general probably more than memorial meal end of the spectrum where they just, you know, there's there, we just do this in remembrance of Christ and that there's nothing sacramental going on there at all. But historically in, in calling them the sacramentarians, uh, there's an editor's note here in the reader's edition of the book of Concord that, uh, that, that confirms what you were, what you were saying there. So it says, uh, reformed Christians deriving their theology from the teachings of Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin, deny that Christ is truly present in, with, and under the bread and wine. They speak of his spiritual or symbolic presence. Um, and so again, as kind of things develop, especially under Zwingli's um, followers and so forth, uh, it, it tends to just, again, probably a PhD uh, research and probably things have been done here is kind of the development of that theology, how it got so far away from kind of even seeing a spiritual um, uh, presence at work there and just kind of just doing it because Jesus said so sort of thing. Uh, but when we're talking about the sacramentarians, though, we would probably claim that for ourselves and hold on to that tightly today. Um, here we are meaning those who we are opposed with in terms of their theology, right? Yeah, I think a helpful, a helpful word there in the explanation is that word symbolic, because if I remember correctly, when Luther is writing against Zwingli uh, in his personal writings against him, uh, uh, there's an argument over this word symbol. Uh, Lutherans are very comfortable speaking of the sacraments as the symbols uh, of the Church at, at times, and yet we mean something completely different than a, a Zwinglian would mean. A Zwinglian would mean if it's a symbol, then it's empty of that which it's representing, whereas Luther would say, no, no, if it's a symbol, it's carrying that which it, uh, in a sense, represents. Uh, and so I think that's that's one of the... Um, underlying issues here is is uh, just because the bread and the wine um, are a visual, quote-unquote, symbol, does that mean that they don't carry the body and blood of Christ, or does it mean that they do carry it? Yeah, that's, that's a great uh, reminder of something I bring up on the show a lot because my wife brings it up like every night at the dinner table. Words mean things, right? And, and what is it that we right. mean by these words? So that's, uh, that's really important to lay out there. All right, so now that we kind of have an identification of uh, what uh, sacramentarians are, where they, uh, you know, and, and that, that's not us. Um, so uh, we will dig into then these paragraphs. So again, picking up with uh, paragraph two here. Question. In the Holy Supper are the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, A, truly and essentially present, B, distributed with the bread and wine, and C, received with the mouth by all those who use this sacrament. Whether they are worthy or unworthy, godly or ungodly, believing or unbelieving, are they received by the believing for consolation and life, but by the unbelieving for judgment? The sacramentarians say no, we say yes. All right, so go ahead and break that down. The, that There's really a couple questions there. So it, it begins, at least in the reader's edition, uh, question, uh, colon, right? And then it lays out uh, what you would think would be one question, but there's really a couple questions, uh, but one in the same point going on there. Yeah, so he, you know, the, uh, the writers give us these three bullet points, A, B, and C. Uh, is, is, uh, are the body and blood of Christ uh, received uh, truly, or are they truly and essentially present? There's there's point A. So uh, again, for the Zwinglian, they would say, well, uh, they're 
Christ is present, Calvin would say, Christ is present, but in the same way that he says, lo, I am with you always, sort of this generic omnipresence. Uh, but he would say that the body and blood of Christ are not thereby present. Uh, and, and we would say, well, no, uh, he is truly and essentially present. This gets back to Augsburg Confession uh, 10, uh, distributed with the bread and the wine. Again, if he's not, if his body and blood is not present, then the uh, sacramentarians would say when you're handing out or when you're distributing bread and wine, you're only distributing bread and wine. If the bread falls on the floor, if the wine is spilled, no harm, no foul, because you're just distributing bread and wine. Whereas the Lutherans would say, no, if the bread falls on the floor, you don't step on it. You pick it up and you reverently consume it. Uh, if the if the uh, uh, wine spills on the floor, you don't just uh, you know, uh, find the, the easiest way to, to um, uh, mop it up, but rather you treat it reverently. In fact, there's that, that uh, story of Luther late in life uh, when he was quite ill and, and uh, spilled, some of the, uh, uh, spilled some of the wine on the floor, and he got, got down, as the story goes, got down on all fours and licked it up uh, as, as a, as a uh, reminder that this is the blood of Christ. And so Lutherans treat it with great reverence. It, it, you know, going to customs and practices. This is why Lutherans historically have knelt for the Lord's Supper, as opposed to the Reforms historically not kneeling, because the Reforms said, why would we kneel? There's nothing present here. And the Lutherans said, no, there is something present. It's the body and blood of Christ, the body and blood of our God. Why would we not kneel before our God? So that's point B. Uh, point C, received with the mouth by all who use the sacraments. Now you sort of get into the issues of, is it Christian love to have open communion uh, because you're wanting to invite everybody, or is it Christian love to have closed communion or closed communion uh, because you are wanting to um, safeguard unbelievers from harming themselves? You can't harm yourself if there's nothing present other than bread and wine. But if the body and blood of Christ are present, then, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, it can be taken to one's harm if they do not properly discern the body and blood. And, and, and so these three bullet points are, are big bullet points for showing this big distinction between the Zwingli view and the Lutheran view of the supper. I, I think that's really well laid out for us. And one of the things that I want to highlight here too is, is, is what you brought in there uh, in terms of it, it, it plays out in our practices and you brought in, you know, open versus closed communion or, you know, what happens if some spills and so forth. But historically, and, and this can get really sensitive, and, and here I always want to remind uh, Concord Matters and KFU Radio are not your church and we are not your pastors, unless you're one of my parishioners or Pastor Bestel's parishioners, in which case come talk to us uh, if you are listening to this. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, here we can talk about these things, but I, I want to not you know, be used against your pastor or anything like that. So I want to be very clear on that point before I bring this up. But uh, again, when American evangelicalism and just kind of this reform view of what even goes on in the supper, especially in the development, uh, as they're just so numerous uh, in, in the United States as the United States grows and develops. And I can even look at the history of my area here in Southern Illinois. We, uh, my two congregations, the church buildings themselves go back to the 1800s. And so we've been here a long time and we'll talk about kind of the, the areas that, you know, you, you have your, uh, 
uh, you know, your, uh, your, your town and village that is historically Baptist and your town and village that is historically Lutheran and things like that. But, but this kind of what I call American evangelicalism and formed by all these other reform bodies, uh, became very numerous and influential. It kind of overshadowed and it comes in and a lot of practices that Lutherans historically would have not done, namely like the individual cups. And, and it was actually in one of my congregations that I serve here only recently um, that uh, under my predecessor uh, that individual cups were even introduced. It was the common cup only for, for the great length of history of the congregation. Now there's germs and especially now with the virus and things like that, those sorts mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. considerations that have impacted that historically as well. But, but I think also uh, w- what you're hitting on here is, is the theology that you have at work does inform your practice and your practice does testify or confess something about the theology that you have at work. And so that's why it's very important to be clear on what is it we believe, teach, and confess with regard to these things? Because what is it we're, we're saying by some of our practices? And are we allowing certain practices in that are simply, as I highlighted earlier, and as you highlighted really well too, still kind of that threat of crypto-Calvinism that it's teaching that actually stands against us. Now, again, I'm not criticizing your pastor because he uses individual cups. I even have them, again, in my, my dual parish here and so forth. But we can simply talk about the history and development of these things and, and, and also, uh, you know, just, just have a theological discussion on this that maybe makes us dig into these things and have some consideration about what is our theology and how should that inform our practice and things of that nature as well. And I think that this comes in because this is a really helpful kind of threefold question laid out here in these three points of, you know, when we say yes in regards to these things and they say no, well, that that may impact then some of the things that we do with regards to this. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right, and I think the individual cups is a great example. Uh, like your congregation, my my congregation uses both. We're actually sort of coming uh, from a different perspective, though. Uh, uh, when I got to my congregation, the congregation I serve now, I would say probably 85, 90 percent of the folks use individual cups, and just by being able to to teach on the history of the matter. You know, individual cups, for those who don't know, they started around the 1880s, and it started with groups who did not believe in the bodily presence of Christ. And that's just a historical fact. It started up in, if I remember correctly, upstate New York or somewhere in New York, uh, and and they they didn't believe in the bodily presence of Christ. They were prohibitionists who thought that the use of wine uh, was sinful. And if you don't believe in the words of institution anyway, why not change the practice to fit your views? And so they said, well, we don't believe... So we should use wine, uh, so let's use grape juice. And then they all started getting sick on the use of the common cups, so they went to individual cups. And, and, and like you said, now there's the fear of germs nowadays. But if it's the body and blood of Christ, and, and this is you know one of the things I try to remind my, uh, my members of, too, and especially I think this is going to be something that we need to be very sensitive coming out of this coronavirus situation. Folks are very understandably going to want to go to the individual cups until the government says, you know, everything is safe. But keep in mind that when we receive the body and blood of Christ, we are not receiving the body and blood of a dead Christ uh, uh, or of a sinful human Christ. We are receiving the body and blood of the risen uh, Christ. We are receiving the holy body and the holy blood of the risen Christ. 
and and sin and death and germs cannot overcome that. Uh, and and so uh, certainly we continue to use uh, uh, the individual cups in our congregation, but simply by talking about it. Now I would think the percentages are flipped in our congregation. I think it's probably 70, 75% who use the common cup and 25% who use individual because you're absolutely right. It, there's a history of confession there. And, and, and without even realizing it, we had adopted some American evangelical practices in the 20th century that we're now starting to learn, wait a second, we don't have to use those practices. Uh, we can rejoice in being Lutheran and all those practices that confess quote, this is my body, this is my blood, for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and, and, and therefore for the strengthening of our faith. Yeah, and, and, and I think you're right. You know, we, we want to be sensitive to these sorts of things, especially coming out of this, uh, this whole situation that is affecting our world right now with the coronavirus right. and, and people staying at home and so forth. But, but it does impact a lot of those sorts of things, you know, as, as uh, you know, I, I am, uh, you know, maintaining the practice of offering the sacrament to those who desire it within the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, proper number of groups and those sorts of things. Um, yet at the same time, you know, to be able to minister to my people in terms of the preaching and things of that nature, I'm making use of, you know, what, what KFO has wonderfully provided me, you know, audio is just kind of easiest for me um, as I do my radio mm-hmm. show. So I, I use it also to provide, uh, you know, preaching and, and services for sure. my people as well. Um, but uh, when we come out of this, then we, we want to remember again, what is our theology and let that form our practice as we come back to the church. Again, I'm not condemning a single pastor or anything out there in, in terms of what they choose to do. Um, but for myself, um, because of my theology and my Lutheran theology of what, what is significant in the gathering together of the body of Christ to receive the body and blood of Christ, um, I'm probably more hesitant to make use of some of those exceptional means like, uh, you know, providing an audio service, of course, for shut-ins and things like that. But, but on a regular basis, I'm, I'm not real, um, you know, uh, I, I don't tend to do that. Um, because right. again, what is my theology at work here? And, and so, you know, those sorts of considerations will play into, you know, do we continue these sorts of exceptional measures that we've put in place just for this time? Uh, because, Hey, that was really great. Uh, well then we could face other issues, which is again, it's just all a spiritual gathering and things like that. Well, that's not our theology. If, if you think that you can just sit at home and watch on YouTube or, or uh, things like that on a regular basis when there's not, you know, exceptional times in place, I would encourage you to talk to your pastor. That's, that's not genuine Lutheran theology. Also it plays into it and we don't really want to get too deep into this because it's a real raw sensitive issue right now. Uh, Mm -hmm. But we can clearly confess, you know, that when it comes to the matter of internet communion, uh, that's, that's very testy within our church body right now. Uh, again, when we confess what we confess as Lutherans, that's, that's not a practice that we're going to abide by even in exceptional times. Uh, and so we're more likely yep. to go the fasting route and those sorts of things like that. But, uh, again, I, I'm, I'm with you that this is, this is a time to, uh, to talk about and to teach, uh, so that we can have that form and shape our practices and then also consider in the practices that we have, what does that confess about the theology that we have? Yeah, no, I, I sort of, uh, I guess just to summarize this, I sort of view the situation uh, as unique as it is, sort of like when the, uh, the disciples were in the boat with Jesus, they were afraid that they were going to drown. Uh, Jesus uh, first calms the storm, and then, in a sense, he uh, admonishes 
lovingly chastises, corrects them, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? And really, I think that's sort of a situation that the whole Church is going through right now, is that uh, with, with good Christian love and generosity and goodwill toward everyone, we're going to say individual pastors are going to do what they can, what they think is right to get through this, and and and, uh, and other than anything that's completely out of bounds and, and out of uh, left field, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be patient and, and loving and understanding. But there will be there will be a, a time. There will come a time for, if you will, a debriefing uh, where where Christ will say to the whole church, "Why did you doubt? Uh, and 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 why did you uh, uh, feel the need to uh, uh, change all these things? And how does that how does that affect the life of the church and the practice of the church going forward? So that time will come. But yeah, this is a it's an odd time, isn't it? It's an odd time. It really is. And and uh, on the matter of time, just a completely sidestepping, kind of going another direction, we do have a few for, uh, sure. other things to address here uh, in a few paragraphs uh, that I want to read. And then I think this helps us with that spectrum that we've been talking about as well. So let's discuss that and end the show here. So uh, picking up a paragraph three, to explain this controversy, it must be noted in the beginning that there are two kinds of sacramentarians. Some are openly crass sacramentarians. They declare in plain, clear words that they believe in their hearts that in the Holy Supper nothing but bread and wine is present, distributed and received with the mouth. Others, however, are crafty sacramentarians. They are the most harmful of all. In part, they talk very fancy using our own words. They pretend that they also believe a true presence of the true, essential, living body and blood of Christ in the Holy Supper. However, they say Christ in the Holy Supper or I'm sorry, however they say that this happens spiritually through faith. Nevertheless, under these fancy words, they hold precisely the former crass opinion, namely that in the Holy Supper, nothing is present and received with the mouth except bread and wine. For with them, the word spiritually means nothing other than the spirit of Christ or the power of Christ's absent body and his merit that is present. But for them, Christ's body is, is, no, is in no mode or way present, except above in the highest heaven. They say we should elevate ourselves into heaven by the thoughts of our faith, and there, not at all, in the bread and wine of the Holy Supper, we should seek Christ's body and blood. So it's not complete sidestepping here, uh, but go ahead with just about a minute 30 here. Uh, break this down for us as it relates to the spectrum that we've talked about and the theology that plays out in our practice. Sure. So the class sacramentarians, this is simply those who say, nope, memorial meal, that's all that it is, right? That, that's pretty That's pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, Crass sacramentarians have no use for any spiritual eating whatsoever. It's just something that you do because you were told to do it, bread and wine. Uh, the, the crafty sacramentarians, those who think that you're eating spiritually through faith, would be more followers of Calvin, if you will, to his credit. At least Calvin thought there was something spiritual going on. But for him, magisterial reason takes over his, his interpretation of the scriptures so that he has to say, you know, if Christ is true man, he's stuck up in heaven. Uh, because man can't be in more than one place at one time. And so if he's stuck up in heaven, that he, his true body and blood cannot be on every altar. And therefore, if we want to feast on him all at the same time, then we have to go up to where he is. Ironically, that gives us the ability to be in more than one place at one time, uh, because we are eating here below while feasting on him above, and supposedly he cannot be here other than spiritually, uh, because he's stuck up in heaven. So the, the, the crafty sacramentarians are those who are more trying to use reason to try to figure out how do I make the sacraments work uh, while still holding on to 
Jesus uh, uh, being stuck up in heaven and their, their supposed view of what it means to sit at the right hand of God. Uh, this is true for their other understanding, or their, under, uh, their understanding of the other sacrament as well. With baptism, it's very much a view of uh, there's something that happens here below with water, uh, or excuse me, there's, there's water being used here below, but really the work is actually being done far away. And I know we're out of time here, but if anybody's ever uh, seen the movie of, of C.S. Uh, Lewis, the, the Voyage of Don, Don Treader, or read the book, there's that scene where Aslan, who represents Christ, comes to save Eustace, who is a dragon at the point, and he comes to save him, and they're standing on an island, and the water is all around the island, and yet Aslan doesn't use the water, he just breathes on him, if you will. So the water is present, but it does nothing. Same view, if you will, of the Lord's Supper, that the bread and the wine are present, but the spiritual eating, faith ascends to where the work really happens, up in heaven. And that's, that's the subtle sacramentarian view uh, where they can say, well, yeah, we believe that Christ is present, just not the way Lutherans do. It's, it's very crafty, but it's definitely not, this is my body, this is my blood. All right, that's excellent. Thank you so much to Pastor Mark Bestel. He's the pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. We thank him for joining us for Concord Matters today and giving us uh, an excellent discussion of the status of the controversy with regard to the teaching on the Holy Supper of Christ. Thank you so much. And if you have a question or comment that you would like to leave for us to address the next time we convene for Concord, you can leave us a message by phone, 314-996-1542, email kfo at kfo.org. Find us on social media at KFO Radio. Thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. You keep safe in this time of shelter at home. And until next time, keep confessing, church.